0: of guys that worked for me as operations guys and they were absolutely reliable in the sense that I didn't really have to question the decisions that they were making and and through experience and time and working together so I think that when you get a team and you start working together corporately it's important to play off of each other and understand each other's strengths and weaknesses in in the sense that sometimes you need to make a a rapid decision And and other times you need to think about it and try to make a timely decision that's the most effective thing that you can do.
1: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part three of our mini series with Tom Bigley, former special mission unit operator. Tom, we talked about for this third one, talking about principles and mastery. So can we start off, can you talk about some principles in patrolling and and reconnaissance and sniping? Right,
0: sure. Well, let's let's just talk about in, in the Ranger Regiment the, in Second Battalion. Anyway, in my experience, we always talked about the principles of patrolling, which are planning, risk, reconnaissance, security, control, and of course, in the later years and probably now, they always added safety in there. And with all the all the latest things on safety, I'm sure that's a that's a important phase. But when you talk about planning, when you're planning a patrol, when you're planning a combat patrol. You, you have to come up with a basic plan. The, that principle would apply, I think, universally to anything you're trying to do, regardless of what it, what it might be, whether you're planning a, a vacation or you know a, a combat operation to go uh, kill bin Laden. And, of course, the plan, the basic plan, is going to change as, the, as it develops but you still want to start off with a basic plan of what you're going to do, who, what, where, when, and how and those types of questions. And then you get into a reconnaissance phase and you may just look at a map and say we're going to travel from point A to point B, we're going to patrol on foot with X amount of equipment and so forth, just like you would do when you're going to the beach, for example. <laughs> and and it is really that simple. So and when we talk, just want to caveat this, when you're talking about a principle, they're not something that you can omit. It's not a suggestion. So you have to plan, you have to do a reconnaissance of some type, and you have to have control and uh, security. Now, when you talk about other plans, you know, security might not be armed where you're armed and you're you're having uh, people awake and you're you're putting people in positions to secure your position. But you still want to have, Security. Years ago, I remember somebody asked me about where certain places I might or might go in DC or, and I, and I always made the point. I said, well, if you do the plan and you do the reconnaissance, you're going to see some of these areas are dangerous for anybody, whether it's a, you know, a couple going out to dinner, you better know some of these neighborhoods that you want to avoid or some of these areas that you might want to avoid. And that's, that's just like you would do in a patrol. There might be some areas that enemy activity is higher or lower. So In a corporate structure, you might want to avoid certain things that you're trying to get into in a in a bid. And it's not necessarily a security thing. It's just a risk. So when we talk about security, you can apply it to a risk assessment that you would do in other types of things that you're planning. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, you were talking before about, you know, I know in the last couple weeks, as you and I have talked, you're, you know, you're in the middle of millions of dollars of deals on your latest endeavor. Right. And, you know profitability right. is obviously a risk when the margins start getting small and there's uh, exactly. a lot of folks involved, right?
0: Yes. And the problem with my current thing, which I don't want to get too far into it, sure. but the kind of, just like I said, you have a plan and then kind of stick to the plan. If you try to over modify something or you ask too many questions and you haven't necessarily answered the first questions, it's hard to keep control of what's going on. So the control thing in this case is very important in a corporate sense. In other words, if you have a corporate officer that's kind of a, a maverick, let's say, or kind of shooting at the hip, it's hard to control what he's doing, and it does impact profitability. And it, it, in this case, it causes a lot of angst in the in the group because you're asking questions that don't necessarily apply if you haven't answered the first ones, for example. Yeah. So if you're if you're going to ask me a question, how long something takes, and you haven't answered the questions about funding, it's kind of irrelevant to, to ask me how long something's going to take if the, the buyer, for example, doesn't have the funds. It's it's kind of a waste of time. But in, in the sense of just generalities, you definitely want to have control of what you're doing. And if I can't control an element that's moving in the front of a patrol and know that you know they, they can't. They can go too fast or too slow. So I want to be able to control their movement, maybe the direction that they're going in and so forth. So it's important in all senses to have control, hence why it's a principle. And that, yeah. that applies universally.
1: Yeah. So, and, you know, principles are great, but knowing about things obviously isn't uh, nearly as, as useful as actually being good at those things. So let's talk about things like, you know, in the special admission unit, level type performance, when you're looking at that special mission unit level performance, you know, the the folks, the snipers and the reconnaissance folks, what are some of the skills that people aren't born with that have to be practiced over and over to achieve mastery in those sections? Well, we'll talk
0: about like individual skills, but I kind of want to mention one thing because I actually came to me. navigation skills in special mission units are critical and navigation skills at the basic level and i've always kind of said if you can master something at the basic level hence you kind of become a master and when i'm what i'm talking about is navigation so when you navigate you use a like a regular map and a compass and you know you go out there and you find and you figure out what azimuth you're supposed to move on and that you know what the i don't want to get too technical but you understand the declination
1: changes globally so no matter where you are tell us those words azimuth declination what do those mean
0: well azimuth is a direction via compass like degrees like you're going to travel at you know 270 degrees west via a compass and and it's different because of The North Pole geographically is the North Pole, but magnetically it's different. So declination is the shift in what your compass actually says to what your actual degrees on the ground are. So you may be plus or minus 5 or 10 degrees, depending. In North America, in Western North America, in Washington State, for example, it's one declination difference. And I'd have to look, and the maps tell you this stuff, but it would tell you you'd have to add or subtract five degrees for example and that's critical if you're trying to pinpoint something directly now the difference is what i want to speak to is everybody's got a smartphone and everybody basically has a a compass and can navigate with their car and their phone and they just punch in some address the problem occurs when your technology fails so it's great to be able to navigate with a GPS, for example, and it'll tell you, yeah, walk this way and so forth. It doesn't necessarily always take into consideration the the terrain and, you know, the difficulties you might have moving on foot to a certain position, but your phone sometimes will tell you traffic and say, hey, you need to avoid this route. But what happens when, for whatever reason, the phone or the the technology fails, you still should be able to have a map and look at a map and be able to determine your location and where to go and the best route and so forth. And that that's a big failure right now in a lot of average people. So in the special mission units, it's critical that you know how to do that without technology. And that's one of the first big test and selection that you're tested on is to be able to not only navigate smartly and effectively, but do it independently. So the skills that you acquire sometimes, it's, it's great to have group, you know, group activities. And you, you have to do that too, but you have to, you really have to master the individual skills prior to moving to that step. So regardless of what it is.
1: Yeah. You know, we had uh, your former colleague, Al Buford on and He talked about that how there was this idea, you know, moving up from Rangers of, you know, the group. The group can't carry you like we can't have you be the weak link. Like every link needs to be a strong link here.
0: Well, I had to carry Al several
1: times. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, I,
0: I, I I should. I'll, I'll retract that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But no, he's absolutely right. That's exactly the advantage. To having a career, in my opinion, anyway, as a ranger and then moving on to a higher skill level, like a special mission unit in Delta or wherever. And I can actually say that because I'm not there anymore.
1: So, <laughs> so uh, Well, I want to ask you just quickly before we move on, you know, of all the different crazy places you went over your career and, you know, without oversharing, what was one of the most challenging environments for navigation for you? Can you remember any specific mission? Is it jungle? Is it uh-huh. desert? Is it South America? Is it?
0: Well, I, I think
1: I none of them really stand
0: out. They're all they're all similar. Although years ago with the Rangers, I was in Jordan for an extended period of time, and we were we were moving in some pretty challenging terrain in the sense of really steep wadi type desert terrain with a lot of loose rock and so forth and to be able to do that consistently for the right speed and time it w- it was extremely challenging although the hardest part of it was dragging the jordanians with us and you know and want they wanted to stop and drink tea every five minutes but the terrain itself when- whenever you're in mountainous steep terrain that's that's hard to navigate in because you could come to areas that are impassable. So your your map reconnaissance is critical at that point. That's also occurred several times in the uh, North Cascades here in Washington State on some things that we were doing for the Park Service in uh, the border regions of Washington in uh, the Canadian border.
1: Got to be careful of those Canadians, man.
0: Well, I wasn't really worried about the Canadians, but we did come to some, what they call some Areas that were really technically difficult to pass, and we knew that based on the reconnaissance and we had the equipment to do that, but it's still challenging to get to somewhere and then have to do vertical climbing and so forth you know
1: so. the the business comparison that makes me think of, and I want you to jump in here is I think about you know over the years all the different business stuff you've talked to me about that you've done I think about how often you need multiple parties to agree to stuff like you're you're very often like you know, whether it's logistics, whether it's other things you've done, you know, there's a lot of people's opinions and some people have more power and some people have more money and there's borders and approvals and government agencies and all those bureaucracies. I'm interested in any thoughts you have about like preparation to be able to navigate, you know, the human relationships and getting business done.
0: Yeah, that's a great question because it varies directly with who you're operating with, and regionally it changes. And I didn't learn this by by anything other than experience. So, for example, if you're operating in North America and you're trying to deal with U.S. companies, you you have one – definitely one – Way to operate where you can write a contract and people will will make assumptions and they'll sign something and they'll have a a kind of a chain of events that will occur. For example, I built a, a big training simulator in Virginia. And in most construction projects, you have maybe a down payment and then at a certain percentage complete, there's payments that occur and the contracts are all in place and it states that and, and everybody can see that. And so you would think that the CEO that signed the contract would understand that at 50% complete, a certain payments due. And when I confronted the guy in Virginia in this case, and it's a lot of money, a couple hundred thousand dollars basically. And I was talking to him. And I said, you know, this is due right now. And so he's like, well, how, how come this is due and so forth? I said, well, well, you need to read the contract. And it's, it's all pretty stated clearly in there. And he was like, his comment was, well, I don't know this. I haven't seen that. I said, well, you know, the problem is, Bob, I'll use Bob as, I like to use Bob as a general name. <laughs> Bob, you signed the contract. So if you didn't read it, I can't help you. I said, but, you know, this is due. So. What are we going to do here? And and it became a struggle because short of getting lawyers involved, and that's the last thing you want to do, is get lawyers involved. Is I'm trying to make payroll and so forth, like and make be able to pay for equipment that was already purchased. And so it's not always just overseas, but we did get through that, and it was it was uh, rectified. The problem is we both spoke English. So you can imagine how these things would occur in other countries sometimes where I may be in the United States trying to talk to somebody in, a, in another country like Kenya who speaks English maybe or broken English, or I have to have a translator involved. So those things can be really challenging to get done.
1: Yeah. Well, and, I, and if you're talking about the deal I think you're talking about, there's, <laughs> there's a large government agency with a big bureaucracy <laughs> probably in the middle of that too with a lot of rules.
0: Well, I'll I'll give you another example of how things overseas can happen. So, in in the case of working in Africa, for example, we built a bunch of structures in Africa, and I was paying people via in, in wire payments through I'm going to forget the name of this company now. And you can you can edit this. I can't remember. Who do you, who do you wire stuff through overseas? What's
1: a I don't know, like a Western Union or somebody?
0: Western Union, that's the company. There you go. So, I had been wiring money to And this is for a State Department contract. So it's a government contract. It has a government number and all these. So Western Union comes back to me and says, hey, you're wiring money to the Middle East to these people and you have to justify what you're doing. And so we did. I sent them the government contract numbers. I gave them the government contract rep's phone number and email information and so forth. And they subsequently threw me off of Western Union and barred me from making any transactions on Western Union. And as a matter of fact, would never even listen to an argument on why I thought that was ridiculous. And they didn't care. They said, well, we don't know who these people are in Kenya, and you're no longer allowed to wire money. So we had to do other things and so forth. But those are stupid things that occur when, you know, you can't figure out why they would do that because – that it's it's a valid contract. It's it's just a U.S. government contract. And and the other thing is the State Department won't even address it. They don't care. They they don't care that you can't do that, and they just want the project finished. So there's a lot of little challenges like that.
1: Yeah, well, maybe we'll shift. Maybe we'll cover the mastery stuff in part four. You know what this leads me into is thinking about this idea of the right equipment for the job, you know? Like mm-hmm. at at the point that, you know, your equipment – Western Union has malfunctioned on you, and now you need to improvise, now you need to get creative, right? Find a new solution. Right. You, so, so let's start with, you know, I know people are always pestering you, you know, Tom, what what pistol would you bring to combat? What rifle? What's, you know, some of those things. What What are some of your standard answers when people are asking you about tactical equipment?
0: Well, what I tell people is not necessarily what the right thing is. I tell them what I do and what I like and why. And then they can kind of make their their predictions or make their their choices based on that. For example, I carry a, a standard nineteen eleven forty five as a as a pistol sidearm. The reason why is because it's very reliable. I like the the caliber forty five caliber. I don't carry hollow points or anything fancy. I just use a straight standard round, and and that's my my sidearm. For example,
1: um, and is it that that Springfield that we were shooting at your house is that your right that, that the that's one that you like the most
0: yeah and and several reasons not just the caliber and so forth and your your listeners can look up Larry Vickers but Larry Vickers helped me build that gun probably if not the best one of the best 45 gunsmiths in the world and and I had access to him and so forth so lucky me but the reality of it is that you do want to do you do want to make your weapons as as efficient as you can without necessarily breaking the bank, for example. And a lot of these guns like Glock 45s, Glock 19s, right out of the box are really well made and, and they work really well. And I think that would also be an option. And, and the question always comes up, well, you know, some of these other modern guns or more modern guns have higher round capacity.
1: <laughs> yeah, My, I asked you that. You asked me
0: that. And I don't know if you remember my answer.
1: I I do. But
0: what was that? What was that? I'll see if you remember. Well,
1: you said you just kind of looked at me and you're like, huh, I can change mags really fast.
0: Right. It's like get more efficient at changing magazines because you can carry virtually a, a lot of magazines and you will you will run out of ammo in your gun at some point. So even if you have a high round capacity, the better you are at changing magazines rapidly and efficiently is a, is a skill that you can't omit regardless of how many rounds you can have in your magazine. So I think that is, that's, that's not, that's kind of a principle that you don't want to violate. You want to be efficient magazine changer, if that's a term, you want to be efficient at that and accurate at, you know, being able to shoot well and accurately and so forth. So that's a type of question I get a lot on what type of, you know, pistol I like. I in, in reference to assault rifles, I like M4s. I know they have a 7.62 version of that now, which I would probably be inclined to use, although it wasn't available when I was working in, in that capacity. So, yeah, 7.62 is better than 5.56, 5. you know, two two three caliber versus thirty caliber in, in close quarter combat, if you ask me. And I think most of my modern colleagues would agree with that.
1: Yeah, you know, any manufacturers of choice for like an AR? Well, I like Colt stuff.
0: I, you know, I I know there's a couple of uh Knight's Armament makes some nice rifles in that in in that sense, but they're all based on a on a Colt design and and operation of, you know, functioning. Yeah. So I think that's good. I do like also M14 action, and, and they do make a mini 14 version, so it's 5.56. Five, I, I like those. They're very user-friendly. They work, and they're, well, really proven through time.
1: Like, so back in, like, the Blackhawk down days, what what were you carrying then?
0: I carried an M4, so.
1: In 5.56? 45,
0: five, so I carried that.
1: and And in certain circumstances,
0: you may have, depending on if you're trying to clear something, a pistol as a primary weapon. If you do that, then you carry a pistol as a backup too. So I'd have a pistol backup for my M4. And if I was in some search situ- situation, you know, back in the old days in Vietnam, you had the guys clearing um, tunnel tunnel rat guys, mm-hmm. and I assume that they had backup 45s or backup handguns too. So is is that two
1: 1911s, or what? Were, what were your choices there?
0: Right. Yeah, I would I would carry a a backup 45, a backup 1911.
1: So, and what about on the sniper side?
0: I had a couple of really, I had a couple of guys there that made some really nice rifles, the guys that worked on guns for us. And I had a Macmillan 308, which was a really nice 7.62 sniper rifle, accurate out, depending on the ammo, but accurate out to about 800 meters. And I also carried, or I said, I didn't carry, but I had a an M21 and a 300 Magnum, both in, in Remington actions not not the i'm sorry not the m21 that's that's a different action but i had a a remington action 300 magnum and 7.62 rifle so just different the two bolt action rifles were very accurate out to you know it's based on my skill they were accurate out to about the 300 magnum out to about a thousand
1: meters so when you think about you know when you think about the right tool for the job whether it's you know i know you've been involved in manufacturing body armor You've been you've custom made a number of things for the government in the past. How does the how do these principles of equipment selection from your years and years in special operations? How has that influenced your your business decisions?
0: Well, I think in business, just like in in combat situations, you want reliability. When you talk about reliability in personnel, for example. And I had a couple of guys that worked for me as operations guys, and they were absolutely reliable in the sense that I didn't really have to question the decisions that they were making and, and through experience and time and working together. So I think that when you get a team and you start working together corporately, it's important to play off of each other and understand each other's strengths and weaknesses in, in the sense that sometimes you need to make a, a rapid decision. And, and other times you need to think about it and try to make a timely decision that's the most effective thing that you can do. For example, if, if I'm trying to move equipment, um, a, a friend of mine who's doing some big deals for me right now ran into this recently. Because of the coronavirus, he was trying to move some, some product. I'm, I'm not going to go into what he was trying to do, but they were buying different products that support the coronavirus epidemic or pandemic. And these, the product was in China. And the region of China the product was in became shut down immediately because of some new swell in the corona cases. So they had to move this stuff from one area in China to another area so that they could ship it out. And those kinds of things you have to kind of just do as it happens. It's kind of how do you deal with something and you just look at all these options and you kind of brainstorm and your team has to brainstorm solutions and they got it done and it got shipped and everybody was happy in the long run but to be able to make timely decisions on how you're going to do something you can't you can't substitute the the international experience of people on your team it's it's not a it's not a time for a learning curve for example in other times you know you want to be able to teach people how to do things and having managers that can think on their feet and we use that term in the in the special operations being able to think on their feet is is very important but it's not something that happens innately you have to train it and I'll give you an example of how how that occurs I had a Lebanese officer working for me in Iraq as a logistics officer he was a, an officer in the Lebanese army and had a vast amount of experience doing different things the difference between american managers and some foreign managers is they won't make lower level decisions without permission basically so this guy brought we needed to buy gloves for a bunch of guards thousands of gloves and this guy brings a bunch of gloves to me like 10 different kinds And he lays them out and he's like, which ones do you want? And I'm looking at him like, first of all, I don't have time to waste on who's going to what kind of stupid gloves we're going to buy. And the problem was, if you think about what he's coming from and and to look at him and I looked at him and I said, well, here's what we're going to do. You're going to tell me what kind of gloves we're going to get. And if they're lousy gloves, it's your fault, not mine, because what he's trying to do is get me to make the decision. So if there's a problem, he can blame me for it. But the problem is it's his job, not mine. So,
1: yeah, I remember you telling me. I remember you telling me that story. And it's it's funny to think about how often we, we think about, you know, if you've got someone to cover it, you've got someone to cover it. And we don't necessarily, at least I find this, compared to guys from your former unit, you guys are always thinking about selection. Who is the human I have to trust? And I think about how you guys are always thinking, who's the human I have to trust to make these decisions? And I think a lot of times, either I've just been lazy or... It's just the stakes aren't that high, but in business we're like, oh yeah, have them do that, and and they're so often that I haven't an really thought in depthly about that person's history and skill set, and are they, you know, are they the ideal individual for the for the job, you know, and yet a little bit of forethought there can be such a time saver in the end, right?
0: I think so, and I think how this applies universally is the u s special operations are very efficient because a lot of lower level decisions are instantly being made by credible people at their level, and where other governments and other 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 groups even in even in America when things fail is when number one you don't train your people to make those intermediate decisions, granted, there are sometimes life and death decisions made by special operators at their level because they have to be made. And not only that is they're qualified to make them. And and everything in business obviously is in a life or death situation. However, the more decisions, and, and frankly, I'm running into this right now in this new endeavor, is that people are, are, number one, they're asking stupid questions, but they're they're not making decisions in a timely manner at their level. So what's happening is the people at the top are getting overwhelmed and basically wasting a lot of time and in essence a lot of money when some of these things could be done at a much lower level if we had the right guys in place and we're 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 trying to obviously we're trying to get the right people in place and make this more efficient but as a new endeavor I'm seeing the exact same issues that occur in foreign entities Because the players are all looking to the boss to make a decision when in essence, some of those decisions could be made and questions answered simply. And it's not it's not a contractual failure if someone was to answer a question on, hey, how long does this generally take to occur? Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: yeah. So, Well, this is probably a good part, a good place to end for for part three here. Maybe to close with, can you just tell us about one of your favorite pieces of equipment from being back in the unit? Just something that you really liked?
0: Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. Well, I, I think at the time, and, and I think it, we have to t- keep the time in perspective, that one, one of the, the best, I think the best pieces of equipment I had was my 7.62 McMillan sniper rifle and And when I say that it was kind of a handmade weapon, so it was very critical to keep it very clean and to take really good care of it and I did that but the the funny side of that piece of equipment was it was it was very accurate, and I was shooting really not handmade ammo but match ammunition. But the the trigger on that gun was extremely sensitive. And for your listeners, most triggers have slack in them. In other words, when you put pressure on the trigger, it'll move a little bit and you'll take up the slack. Pistols, a lot. Some sniper rifles have that slack. This particular gun, I had it made this way, that it had zero slack and a really light trigger. So the advantage for me was when I was ready to fire that gun, it fired instantly and there was no delay at all. And it, it helped me. I don't know if it would help everyone, but it helped me in my accuracy. And and I was a very good shooter at that time and at that level. So if I had to make a command shot, I was very confident in my ability to do that. That was one of my favorite pieces of equipment. And if I had the option, I would have that. And I have a similar. It's not as good as that rifle, but I have a Remington 308 right now that uh, is close to it. And in combination with, I also used a Leopold M4 scope that was a fixed 10 power scope. And in combination, that piece of equipment was probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite. Mm,
1: That's fun. Everybody, uh, please tune back into Port part four of our mini series here with tom bigley former special mission unit operator we're going to be talking about uh, mastery and excellence thanks so much